The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, as we did with the lighting of the candle this morning, we continue our series, our Advent series, as we see through John chapter 1 that the light has come. We, we have seen before through the book of, through the chapter of John, John chapter 1, that the light, he is the word, that the light gives us purpose. And this morning we will see that the light, he is our belonging. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. As you're turning there, there's a little buzz, but we're going to work, we're going to power through. Uh, how many of you have seen the Christmas movie Elf? Any, any, any hands? Uh, okay, some of you have seen the Christmas movie Elf. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, the buzz is gone. Um, but for those of you who haven't, the movie, it centers upon a person named Buddy the Elf. And so during Buddy's childhood, he was raised by Santa and the elves at the North Pole. And so during his entire childhood and his early adult life, Buddy, who's a human, he thinks he's an elf. But then as he gets older, he notices he's a bit different than everyone else. He, he's substantially taller and he can't make toys as fast as the other elves can. And so Papa Elf, he, he sits Buddy down and he breaks the news to him that he's in fact not an elf, but he's a human. And then he shares with Buddy who and where his real father is. And so the rest of the movie, it's about Buddy the elf who was raised in the North Pole, making his journey to the Big Apple in search of his real father. It's a fun and a lighthearted Christmas movie. If you haven't seen it before, it might be a good watch for you uh, this Christmas season. But, but while it's a, a, a silly movie, I, I think the reason why it was so culturally successful is that it strikes a chord with many people. Because it touches on a central theme to the human experience. And that is this deep within. We all have this desire and yearning. For belonging. We, we have a desire to belong. And in our passage this morning, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we will see that true and lasting and perfect belonging, it can only be found in Jesus Christ. Because he indeed, he is the light and the light is our belonging. So with that being said, please open your uh, God's word with me. And let's read John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. God's word says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but who were born of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we pray now that you would cause your word to come alive for us. We don't want to just let this be another 
study time where we look at a book of antiquity and we just find some some good things for our lives today. No, we, Father, we want you to show us your glory this morning through your word. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, do what we can't do ourselves, and that is show us Christ. Father, I pray for maybe maybe someone in this room who is deep down, nobody might know, but deep down they they're hurting. They're searching for a place, a semblance of belonging. Father, I pray that you would meet with them this morning, that you would comfort them, that you would encourage them, and that you would draw them to yourself. We pray, Lord, that you would meet with us, that you would change us, and that you would use us. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, verse verse 9, we see that John says that the true light The one who brings lasting joy and peace and hope and love and meaning and purpose and satisfaction to life. The true light. He has now come into the world to give light to who? To everyone. If you go about today, there are a lot of false lookalike lights in the world, aren't there? There are things in our world today that promise happiness and comfort. And I'm going to fix my mic one second. Let's see if that's better. There are a lot of things in life that that promise happiness and comfort and security and relief and hope. And maybe you find yourself even this morning searching after those things or maybe even worse, enslaved by those things, by those false lights in our world today. Well, listen, the word to the word of the Lord this morning, the true light, he has come and he has come to give you his light and to give you his life. We'll touch on this theme a bit later on, but, but make no mistake what John says here, that there is no one too far from and there is no one out, re, out of reach of the grace of God. He gives his light, his salvation to everyone who would receive him. And John goes on to say in verse 10 that, that he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. And so as I was preparing this sermon, I I just had to stop and think and meditate on that truth. That the one who created the world stepped into his creation. Jesus lived in the world that he himself created. I thought about, okay, what are some, what's some analogies to, to bring that to light? But there is no analogy that can convey the profundity of that statement and the unimaginable humility that Jesus displayed in condescending and coming to this earth. The Apostle Paul, he would put it this way, that the one who is the radiance of God, the one who is the exact imprint of his nature, the one to whom the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim never cease to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created and for whom all things exist. The one who is exalted over all And the one who holds this universe together by merely the command of his word. This is the one who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In the greatest act of love ever conceived, the eternal Son of God condescended to this earth to become the Son of Mary. He came to his own, John says, and he did so to bring the light of his salvation. So what was the response? What was the response to the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, God's promised king to save God's people from their sins? How, How did the people of God, the Jewish people, how did they respond? Well, John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Interesting. So what, what then kept the Jewish people from recognizing Jesus as their Messiah? And what, what, what kept the world from recognizing Jesus as the Savior of all peoples? Well, if you followed along, if you've been reading your Bible, if you at least have some base to work from, you will remember and you will know that because of the curse of sin, every person Scripture says, is born spiritually blind. And so ever since that day, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, as the prophet Isaiah says, we are all living and walking in a land of deep darkness. The reality of the situation, church, is that people then and people still today, they love the darkness more than they love the light. Jesus himself said in John 3 that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He goes on to say, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so the greatest problem in our world today when you think through, okay, our world, we got a lot of problems, don't we? You, you flip on the news, you flip on the TV, you, you open up your news app on your phone, and you just see problem after problem after problem after problem, right? But among all the greatest problems in the world, the greatest one, it isn't poverty, it isn't lack of education, and, and it's not some other physical need. And hear me in saying that, I'm not minimizing those Needs, Especially during this season, we should be looking for ways to generously meet the physical needs of people around us. But listen, as great and as desperate as those needs and those problems are, the greatest and the most ultimate problem in our world today, according to Scripture, is and has always been spiritual blindness. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4 that, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The long-awaited Messiah, the one prophets of old had been prophesying for for thousands of years, and the one that God had promised ever since the beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15. The hope of Israel, he had come. And what was the response of the Jewish people and the world around? Eh. And just like today, people, they just kept going on and on about 
their day with indifference to the light of the world. Well, in his book, Freedom of the Will, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he, he gives this helpful analogy to kind of help illustrate, I hope, the significance of our willful spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. He, he, he shares this story. He says, suppose that there was a prisoner locked in his cell, but then all of a sudden his cell door is unlocked and the gate is swung open. He's granted an opportunity to receive clemency and pardon by the king. If only this man would but kiss the king's ring, fall before him, and confess his sins to the king. But this prisoner does not come out to repent. Why? Edward says he doesn't do this because he hates the king. He would rather spit in his face. To repent, therefore, and to confess For this prisoner to the king would be unthinkable. And as a result, he's morally unable to repent. The king has come to offer pardon for this man. But Edward says this man has become his own prison guard. He's bound not by any limitation placed upon him by the king, but rather by the hardened disposition of his heart toward him. And I think this adequately describes the human condition And maybe your own condition this morning. The king has come. The light of the world. He has come into this world. To set us free from our sins. To shine his light for us. And what does the world do? The world becomes their own prison guard. And rather than receiving the light. They refuse him. Listen. The greatest effect of sin is that it blinds you from seeing the glory of Christ, and it causes your heart to become hardened in such a way that you hate the light, which gives you life. And so, if we are all sinners, and we are, then it would appear that all hope would be lost, right? Since we are all by nature willfully living as spiritually blind people. John says. Jesus, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. We would be without hope, that is, except for that small but glorious word that begins verse 12. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so despite our spiritual blindness and despite our animosity and hardness of heart toward the king of kings, God has still made a way for the spiritually blind to be cured. That is, he has made a way for us to receive the light. That word receive in verse 12, it's the word lombano, and it can also be translated as take hold of, to obtain or to grasp something, to take possession of something. And so in other words, to receive Christ, it involves more than just mere intellectual acknowledgement of his claims. When when, uh, our kiddos, I guess they are still growing up, but uh, um, when when the two oldest, when they were, uh, when they first went to the pool, and maybe I'm sure you've experienced this with your own kids or nieces or nephews, right? The parent, uh, I'm standing in the pool and, and they're looking in and I'm saying, Come on, come on, Ruby, come on, Noah, jump, jump to me, jump, right? And, uh, and so, you know, they want to, uh, you know, but there's this apprehension and fear within them. I, I'm telling them, I will catch you, trust me, I will catch you. 
Well, leading up to this point, I, I, I think they do trust me, right, as their father. That is intellectually. But though they trusted me intellectually, it wasn't until they jumped, fr- until they jumped from the safety of that pool deck and into my arms. It's not until then that they demonstrate their trust, that they truly place their faith and trust in me. And so, like I said, if you've done this with a child, niece, or nephew, your own, there's nothing better than when they finally do make that leap, right? The, the, the tight embrace that they hold on to you. First, it's out of fear. Like, I don't want to go in that water. But then it's the realization, daddy is trustworthy. I can trust my father. Their, their trust in me. It wasn't true trust until it was demonstrated trust. Until it was a leaping in the air and the abandoning of the safety of the pool deck type of trust. Listen, according to scripture, saving faith, receiving Jesus, true trust, it cannot only be intellectual and it cannot be halfway. No, like a little child, you must lombano, you must take hold of, you must cling to, you must embrace fully your Savior and all that he is for you. It's not enough to know and to believe the Christmas and the Easter stories that Jesus, he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, he, he obeyed fully the law of God for us, and that he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead three days later. Listen, you can believe all of those glorious truths. You can know that all that Jesus did, but saving trust, Saving faith takes place when you believe with leaping in the air and full abandoning trust that he did all of this for you. Or as Charles Spurgeon, as he once said, another man's Christ will not save you. He must be your Christ. Trust, it isn't saving trust until it goes from the intellectual to the personal, until Jesus is my Savior, until he is my Lord, my King, and my God. And so I just, I want to ask you this morning, is, is, is Jesus, is he someone of antiquity that you studied and you know about? Or is he your living Savior and Lord and King and God? Have you just accepted maybe truths about him? Or have you received him personally and all that he is and all that he has done for you. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, church, there are only two groups of people in this world, John says. There are those who reject Jesus and there are those who receive Jesus. So which group would you find yourself in this morning? John continues on to say that for those who do receive, for those who do take hold of, grasp on for dear life and embrace fully, to those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So notice with me that phrase where John says, he gave them the right. 
He gave them the right. Listen, what John is saying is this. Salvation is not merely a decision we make, one among many in life that we then check off the list. No, salvation is a sovereign and a supernatural work of God within your heart. It is something that God initiates. It's something that he offers to you as a free gift. And it's something that he accomplishes within you. The only thing we had to offer to our salvation was our sin. Everything else given to us is his grace. That's why Paul would say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, church. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Your salvation, it is by grace and grace alone, so that God alone gets all the glory. At the bottom of it all, at the bottom of our salvation is the Lord. He is the source, the initiator, the accomplisher, and the perfecter of our salvation. He gives us the right, the privilege, the distinction, the honor of becoming children of God. And so maybe just to apply this a little bit, this means, church, that what God gives freely, it can never be taken away. Later on in John's gospel, he would record the words of Jesus when Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And then Jesus says, as if it weren't enough, he goes on to say that my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. We are Saved, We are preserved. We are sustained by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so maybe some of you this morning are struggling with the assurance of salvation. You're asking the question of, am I, am I truly saved? Have I done something in my past to lose my salvation? But listen, if your salvation was dependent upon your grasp of Christ. We would lose our salvation every single day because our grip of Christ periodically slips, doesn't it? And so, yes, if your salvation was dependent upon your grip of him, you could have no peace and no assurance in this lifetime of ever making it to heaven. But listen, church, while we must receive Christ, while we must fully embrace him by faith, listen, what will preserve you to the very end? It's not the strength of your hold of him. No, it is his grip of grace. That will hold on to you until the very end. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he would say this, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, church, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then later on, Jude, uh, Jesus' half-brother, he would say it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And don't miss that. He's the one who presents you blameless. He's the one who cleanses you by his blood. And he's the one who seals you by his grace. Now to him, Jude says, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. He is the one who will keep us till the very end, church. And that is good news for us. 
So one might ask then, does this doctrine of eternal security or preservation of the saints, does it, does it make us lazy in our sanctification? Can we just go and do whatever we want, right? There, there's, I've shared it before, but uh, someone of old once said, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, isn't this one happy world? Is that, is that our way of thinking in the Christian life? If God keeps us to the end, it doesn't matter what we do. Well, Paul would, I maybe ask the question this way. He, he said in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? To which he answers, by no means. How, how can we who die to sin still live in it? No, when your heart has truly been gripped by the grace of God, when you realize that you've done everything you could do to deserve God's judgment and his wrath, that though you have done everything to push him away from you, and still he came running after you. And still he pursued you. In spite of all of your sin, still Jesus, he chose to leave the glories of heaven to come and to rescue you. When that truth takes hold within your heart, when it hits home, the only proper response is that of humble worship and adoration and full surrender to the God of all glory and grace. Listen, maybe we're coming up on New Year's, and I know when New Year's come, all the resolutions come with it, right? I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that, I'm going to change this about my life. But listen, the greatest change agent in this world, it isn't your willpower. It isn't what some call atomic habits. It's not your decision-making skills. No, the greatest change agent in the world, it is when you truly apprehend the grace of God. He, church, he gave us the right. The right to what? To become children of God. And so whether you realize it or not, I think it's true for most of us that we have a tendency to impose the relationship we have with our earthly father onto the relationship we have with our heavenly father. And in in our country and communities, we are suffering greatly today from a pervasive epidemic called fatherlessness. Nearly one-third of the children in our country, they're raised in a fatherless home. And and if the statistics, they bear it out, the damage that this epidemic causes. That children without a father, they... With children without a father present in their life, they're far more likely to live in poverty, partake in drugs and alcohol, and they're 20 times more likely to find themselves in the prison system as a youth. These are true statistics, but maybe this isn't just a statistic for you. Maybe this has been a lived experience for you, that you grew up without a real connection to your father. And so deep down, if that's you, either consciously or subconsciously, maybe your relationship with your father or lack thereof, maybe because of that, you wrestle with those feelings of rejection, those feelings of abandonment, those feelings of emptiness and and feeling as though you are unlovable. Maybe this morning you're you're yearning for a sense of belonging. And so you fill your life trying to do things that will give you that sense of belonging. You, You chase after accomplishing a certain level of success in your work. You try to look a certain way to to please people, or maybe you enter into unhealthy relationships. 
You do so just so that you would be noticed by someone. Just so others would be proud. So that you could feel some semblance of belonging. And if that is you this morning, listen, everything you are looking for. The belonging your heart craves and needs and desires and yearns after. It can only truly be found. And it can only be perfectly fulfilled in knowing God as your true and perfect heavenly father. It can only be found in becoming a child of the living God. And so regardless of what your relationship with your earthly father is or was like, whether good or bad, listen, it does not define and it cannot compare with your heavenly father. If you are a child of God this morning, just think about and meditate on that reality. Think about those times of old when what what it must have been like to be a child of the king, to have the king as your father. Think about the privileges, the prestige, the honor, the dignity, the wealth, the worth that was all yours just by virtue of having the king as your father, just by virtue of being a child of the king. And so I ask this morning, do you know who you are, child of God? Do you know that angels long to know what you know? Do you know that what your heavenly father thinks of you right now at this very moment? Scripture says that right now he is rejoicing over you with gladness and he is quieting you by his Love and that he is exulting over you with loud singing. He loves you and he takes great pleasure and pride in you. That's Zephaniah 3.17 if you want that reference. And do you know what awaits you one day, child of God? That now you are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. And that one day you will receive a new earth as the inheritance of your reward. Listen, there is no greater solution for a self-worth problem. There is no greater remedy to fulfill your sense of belonging. And there is no greater truth that can cure the feeling of being unloved or unlovable. And there is no greater sense of joy and hope and security and meaning and purpose in life than for these three words to be your governing identity, child of God. Elsewhere, the Apostle John would write, which we read as our call to worship this morning, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we have and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so I ask a final time this morning, do you know who you are, child of God? Finally, in verse 13, John ends this passage by highlighting what the source of this new life, the source of this belonging, the source of this new identity, the source of being coming a child of God, what that is. When he says this, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so I will end the sermon with how the passage ends by asking you a question. Have you been born of God? Have you received the new 
birth? Have you become a child of God? Have you been spiritually made alive and healed of your spiritual blindness? Or are you, as Isaiah says, still stumbling around in the darkness without hope and without God in the world? If that's you, what is, what is, I just want to ask, what is keeping you from becoming a child of God? Jesus, he came for you and he will have you today. But scripture says you must, like that child at the pool, you must leave both feet. You must abandon all else. You must place the entirety of your faith in him. And you must embrace him, all of him, all that he is and all that he has done for you. And when you do so, when you receive Christ, you will find that perfect and true and ultimate belonging that your heart craves and longs for. Because it's only in Christ that your heart can truly be satisfied. God's word says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, not by any natural means, but who were born of God, who were born from above. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.